When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about impeachment and what kind of lessons the Democrats can learn from the Republicans' effort 20 years ago to impeach Bill Clinton. Historian Sean Wilentz will comment. Also, what can we do to reduce the death toll in the current epidemic of opioid overdoses? Maya Zolovitz has some answers. She'll report on the Philadelphia neighborhood that the New York Times calls the Walmart of heroin. But first, Bill McKibben on the making of our polluted age. Abundant energy for lights, gasoline, air conditioning, and heat is something we take for granted, almost like it's air or water. We notice that fact only when there's an electrical power failure or an oil embargo. That's something Bill McKibben has been thinking about and writing about for the nation as part of his work on what comes next. Bill, of course, is an author and environmentalist. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, was the first book for a general audience about climate change. It's appeared in 24 languages, and he's gone on to write a dozen more books. The newest one is titled Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Its official publication date is April 16th. Bill, of course, is the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement. It's organized 20,000 rallies around the world in every country except North Korea. He teaches at Middlebury College in Vermont, and he writes for The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you as always, John. You've been reading and writing about the history of energy for the nation, uh, including a new book by Richard Rhodes. He's best known, of course, for his writing on atomic bombs. In this new one, he says the risks of atomic energy have been overstated. What do you think about that? First thing to say is the guy's a terrific writer, serious historian and a terrific writer. I think that the book is probably one of those books that's flawed by the date of its publication. That is, it came out or the research for it was being done just right at the moment when the cost of renewable energy was just plummeting over the last three or four years. And that has really changed the equation around energy in so many ways. At this point, it looks like the way that the world is going to be proceeding is with cheap renewable energy stored in cheap batteries Uh, when the sun goes down or the wind stops blowing. And that that cheap alternative is probably going to make it difficult for what is Rhodes's preferred path forward, nuclear power plants. Nuclear power plants, we could talk all night about the safety issues or so on, but in practical terms, the biggest problem at the moment is simply that they're really expensive. And renewable energy no longer is really expensive, and it's increasingly flexible. And that's why around the world it's where people are going. 
So my guess is that Rhodes' book is one of those books that, had he been writing it now, would sound different than, than it did. Didn't you campaign against the nuclear power plant in Vermont? Vermont has uh, had a troubled nuclear power plant, Vermont Yankee, which, yes, everybody up here, pretty much uh, Republican, Democrat, you name it, finally said should close down when, when the owners of the nuclear power plant misled the state legislature about pretty basic questions, like whether there were pipes underneath the power plant that were carrying waste and that kind of thing. That said, I think the strongest part of Rhodes's argument is that one should be careful, probably, if you have a relatively safe nuclear plant operating at the moment and it's paid for and built, one should be careful about shutting it down without having a lot of renewables in place ready to go. Uh, Vermont shut down its reactor, but then it, because people didn't want to look at wind turbines or hear them, uh, put a moratorium on new wind construction. Power's got to come from someplace. And there's another book by a reporter for Le Monde, A History of the Oil Industry. It's called Oil, Power, and War. Uh, this author is worried about peak oil, an old idea. The idea is that we're using up the available oil resources of the earth and we're going to face terrible shortages soon. Uh, are you worried about peak oil? I think it's one of those things that, you know, one one almost wishes it had happened <laughs> 10 or 20 years ago because it would have been a spur to move us on even more quickly to renewable energy. There seems to be a lot of oil. The question is, you know, at what price and what you have to do to get at it. We're, you know, at the moment doing things like fracking, blowing up the subsurface geology, drilling ever deeper under seas, talking about going beneath the Arctic, on and on and on. All of that's silliness when we have alternatives ready to go. And, you know, oil used to be thought, you know, be harder to replace than, than coal, say, because coal you make electricity with so you can use sun and wind, but you'd need oil for liquid fuel for cars. The very rapid expansion of our EV fleet seems to be calling that into question. I mean, at the moment, I think Tesla's worth more than Ford or GM. Wow. For every car Tesla puts out, the Chinese are putting out about 10 EVs, and we seem to be once again on the cusp of a just super rapid technological transformation. And there's another book you take up in The Nation Current Issue. It has the simple title, Carbon written by a woman named Kate Irvine. It's about the links between energy use, economic growth, inequality, and injustice. Uh, give us an example of what she's talking about. Well, I mean, in a sense, think about this book as a kind of prelude to why we're talking about the Green New Deal now, because it's very hard to pull any of these things out and separate them. Energy such a central commodity. And I think, the, you know, among other things, the thing that gets overlooked sometimes is the fact that it's fossil fuel comes in a few places um, and that the people who live on top of those places tend to develop truly outsized power and wealth. Uh, think about the Koch brothers or Vladimir Putin. People who have control of fossil fuels distort our systems in all kinds of ways. The move towards a more democratized and local energy system will be good not just because it saves the planet from destruction. It might actually make the planet it saves a somewhat better place along the way. 
Well, of course, the solution that conservatives offer is to cap carbon emissions and trade carbon credits. That's the free market solution. What do you think about cap and trade? Well, I mean, conservatives don't even really offer that option. They (laughs) voted it down 10 years ago. You're right. I, I stand corrected. Look, the basic idea that there should be a price on carbon is inarguable. There's no reason that carbon alone should be the only pollutant that one's allowed to spew into the atmosphere for free. You and I aren't supposed to just go dump our garbage in the middle of the road. Only the fossil fuel industry gets to do that, you know. But at this point, we've waited so long to deal with climate change that it's not going to happen by, you know, small accounting tricks alone. Well, one of the things I have to watch out for sometimes, having written the first book about all this back in 1989, is the temptation to say, oh, if only you'd listen to me then, you know? Yeah. Because in 1989, relatively modest changes in our trajectory probably would have been enough to produce the kind of shifts we need. But I mean, at this point, we're busily melting the Arctic and the Antarctic. The oceans are rapidly acidifying. We've had the four warmest years in history in the last four years. California has gone from being a place where people think about beaches to a place where think people think about evacuation routes from wildfires. Yeah. I mean, we need action on every possible front now. You know, one of the bigger issues of cap and trade. Uh, has to do with climate justice for for poor communities. You tend to get these hot spots and yeah. things where, and that's one of the reasons that the EJ community, environmental justice community, has been very forthright and useful in pointing out uh, these problems. Now, I mean, they're not endemic in all pricing solutions. There was a pretty good bill in Washington State last ballot last November endorsed by all the environmental justice groups. Uh, it was a good enough bill that the oil industry broke every record for spending, and so it's you know managed to defeat it. One can figure out ways to do all kinds of things in ways that respect human beings. The Green New Deal is a good example of that. There's still work to be done on it, including around environmental justice stuff, but it's <clears throat> an example of something that we got the scale right on. The folks from the Sunrise Movement and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others have, for the first time, put a piece of legislation forward that's of the same size as the problem it tries to address, and that's pretty crucial. The mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti, made an announcement that is fulfilling one of the principles of the Green New Deal. He... uh, said that Los Angeles is is abandoning a plan to spend more than $2 billion rebuilding three natural gas power plants along the coast. It's a move to get the city closer to its goal of 100% renewable energy and to improve air quality in the highly polluted communities of poor people who live around those power plants. Los Angeles used to get most of its electricity from burning coal, uh, the Navajo plant in Arizona, it's pulled away from that. It's still buying coal from uh, Utah, the Intermountain plant. It says it's going to slow down that at lot, but a lot. But the but the DWP, the Department of Water and Power here in LA, where we record our show, their idea of replacing coal was going to be natural gas. 
uh, remind us the problems of replacing replacing coal with natural gas and how important it is that LA is not going to spend two billion dollars on natural gas plants. First of all, serious shout out to people who did great organizing to make sure that this happened, um, and, and to the mayor for stepping up. That was a big deal. The reason it's a big deal is because moving from coal to natural gas at this point doesn't really help on climate terms. You get less carbon, but you get more methane. It's basically a wash. Um, We need to go straight from coal to renewable power, and we can do it. And we can, if we can't do it in California, we can't do it anywhere because you know you guys stole most of the sun for the whole continent. I mean, it's the obvious rational choice and good on the mayor for figuring that out. Well, the DWP here has, its principle has been for its entire existence to make sure everybody has enough electricity to do everything they want. And and now that things are getting hotter in Southern California and everywhere else, what they want is more air conditioning. And they're now saying, well, what, what about brownouts during the heat waves? If the air conditioners go off, you know, that endangers the health and indeed the lives, especially of elderly people. Uh, that's why we need to make sure the electricity stays on, and that's why we need to build these natural gas plants. Uh, what, what do we say to that? That's why we need to build lots of renewable capacity. They're not wrong about the need for electricity. We actually do need it, and we'll probably need more of it, because as we move cars from liquid fuel to EVs, the, the demand for electricity is going to go up even as the demand for oil goes down. But that makes it all the more crucial that we quickly build out the renewable resources that we need. And California's blessed with that Mojave Desert down the road there. Um, you guys can do this. Well, one big reason for this victory in L.A. is that the Department of Water and Power is a municipal company that's controlled by the city and the voters, not by a private corporation. It's, it's a lot easier to fight City Hall than to fight ExxonMobil. You may get some more of that now that PG&E is going under. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. Uh, and there's one last thing in the news about California. Uh, the new governor, Gavin Newsom, announced he's canceling the completion of high-speed rail that was originally intended by Jerry Brown to connect San Diego and Los Angeles to San Francisco. This is also part of the Green New Deal to replace jet travel based on you know jet fuel with electric renewable high-speed rail. The complaint was that the high-speed rail in California was doubling in price, costing many billions of dollars. But this has to be seen as a, as a defeat for the Green New Deal, doesn't it? I don't know the details of what's going on out there. And I do know that the price tag had kept going up. But I think that the basic idea is this is precisely what we need. And there's no reason we can't have it. Everybody who's been to Europe or Japan knows that good, efficient, timely, high-speed rail transforms lives there and makes it possible to live in very different ways. And so it's a shame that California can't figure out how to do it. Let's hope that it's a small stumbling block and that the next plan gets it done and gets it done quickly. I mean, one of the problems with massive infrastructure projects, of course, is that they normally take a long time. And time is the one commodity that in the climate fight we do not possess. This is the first time test that human beings have undergone. And I got to say, so far, we're pretty far down the grading curve, John. 
Bill McKibben, he wrote about the making of our polluted age for The Nation magazine. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Bill. It's always great to have you on the show. brother. Take care. A postscript. After we recorded that interview, California Governor Gavin Newsom said he was not giving up on the high-speed rail project. He was simply aiming to complete the segment from Bakersfield to Merced in the Central Valley. And that the problem with the rest was lack of funding to connect the segment north to San Francisco and south to L.A. and San Diego. Then Trump tweeted, whole project is a green disaster, and said he would terminate federal funding of $3.5 billion for the entire 220-mile-an-hour bullet train. And he wanted to get back $2.5 billion that the state has already spent. California says that's political payback for the state taking the lead in the lawsuits challenging Trump's declaration of a national emergency to pay for that wall of his. And that's where it stands at this hour. Now it's time to talk about impeachment. The House Judiciary Committee is moving in that direction. And and what kind of lessons can be found in the Clinton impeachment which was 20 years ago. For comment and analysis, we turn to Sean Wilentz. Of course, he's an award-winning historian who teaches at Princeton. His latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We talked about it here a little while ago. He also writes for the New York Times, the New Republic, Rolling Stone, and the New York Review, where he wrote recently about the Clinton impeachment. Sean, welcome back. Great to be here, John. Well, just to review history a little bit, the House charged Clinton with lying under oath. That was about having had sex with Monica Lewinsky and obstruction of justice. But in his trial in the Senate, where a two-thirds vote for conviction and removal is required, that means 67 votes, there were only 45 votes for conviction, 55 against, and Clinton ended up more popular after the impeachment trial than he was before. So some people are warning the Democrats not to do to Trump what the Republicans did to Clinton. (laughs) But we need to look more closely at what exactly it was that the Republicans did to Clinton. It actually started a a bit before Monica Lewinsky, didn't it? Well, (laughs) a whole lot before. I mean, I think the people who, who, who compare the two are like generals who are taking all the wrong lessons from the last war. You know, I mean, it's two completely different situations. Yes, I mean, the investigations of of Bill Clinton uh, began well before uh, 1998, indeed as early as really getting underway in 1992, um, when the Republicans began to get a word out from Arkansas from some very, very nefarious characters that there might be a scandal in something called Whitewater, uh, which was this development in, in Arkansas that uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton had a passive investment in. But it didn't uh, emerge in the 1992 campaign, but it very soon thereafter did. And that kicked off a whole string of, of, of incidents that eventually led to the impeachment in 1998. After the Whitewater land deal was investigated for years and turned up nothing wrong, then the Republicans switched over and focused on Vince Foster's suicide I'm sure most of our listeners don't remember the story of Vince Foster's suicide, but this was a huge issue for Republicans for quite a while. Well, it's actually still there because Trump brought it up in 2016. And if you listen to Ann Coulter and Sean Hanley, they still bring it up from time to time. But yes, I mean, back then, uh, Vince Foster was Bill Clinton's oldest friend from, from Arkansas. 
And he brought him into the administration, and he was working in the administration as a lawyer. And he got depressed. He, he had a depressive uh, you know, condition. He was clinically depressed and didn't get uh, the proper treatment. At any rate, he, he killed himself. And it was a terrible incident, in part because um, he had been made very, very uh, upset by reports in the Wall Street Journal, among other places, for supposedly trying to cover up some of the misdeeds around Whitewater. And um, he, he was not really, uh, you know, the kind of guy who could deal with the rough and tumble of Washington politics. He got very upset, very depressed, and ended up killing himself in, in Fort Marcy Park in Washington. Well, very soon thereafter, the U and cry began coming up from the Republicans, basically, that um, he, there was no suicide at all, that he had been murdered on orders of the Clintons. A pretty wacko charge, but one that um, ricocheted around what was even then the right wing um, sound chamber, echo chamber. And, um, you know, before you knew it, there was um, um, the, the, the special counsel investigating Whitewater, who at that time was a man named Robert Fisk, um, in, um, investigating whether the Clintons had actually murdered Vince Foster. Um, Fisk came up with, said, no, that's not true. He found out that, in fact, poor Mr. Foster had indeed killed himself. But at that point, Fisk was removed by a, uh, a panel of judges, removed from the special counsel's position, and they installed instead one Kenneth Starr. And it was under Ken Starr that uh, the, the, the investigation was reopened, coming to the conclusion finally that, you know, Vince Foster had indeed killed himself. So after the Whitewater land deal produced nothing criminal, no misconduct for the Republicans, right, right, after Vince Foster's right. suicide produced nothing criminal, no misconduct about Bill Clinton. The next thing right. the Republicans focused on was Paula Jones sued Bill Clinton yeah. for sexual harassment. And this, too, looked like it was going nowhere until the Monica Lewinsky story broke. Tell us what Correct. happened I mean, then. Well, the Paula Jones story, I mean, she was a former um, employee, uh, Arkansas State employee, and she accused Clinton of making a very crude sexual advance. The case ended up being decided first by Judge uh, Susan Weber Wright as having no merit at all. The case was appealed, and finally, you know, Clinton actually paid her what she asked for. He just so beleaguered at that point. But yes, the Jones case was getting nowhere. When all of a sudden, Jones lawyers, people who had been working around the Jones case, um, got wind of Monica Lewinsky. Now, it's important to remember who these people were. Um, the Jones case was not just a, a woman from Arkansas who was angry at Bill Clinton and suing him for something that she claimed he had done. It became a, a kind of lightning rod for a whole crew of right-wing conspirators. And they were the ones who got word about Monica Lewinsky and um, on, on their get-go, primarily, and from Ken Starr, the attorney general approved that the, um, the special counsel should, should look into the Lewinsky matter as well. Clinton at that point was due to give a deposition in the Jones matter, and basically he was, he was lured into a, a perjury trap. Um, but he was caught on something that had nothing to do with, really to do with the Jones case whatsoever. It shouldn't have been asked, why they're asking about Monica Lewinsky was anybody's guess. And it certainly had nothing to do with high crimes and misdemeanors against the Constitution of the United States. Recently, we've seen a new perspective on the Clinton impeachment proceedings, which has arisen because of the Me Too movement. Kirsten Gillibrand, Democratic senator from New York, appointed originally to fill Hillary's seat when Hillary became Secretary of State. And, of course, now Kirsten Gillibrand, candidate for the Democratic nomination. She argues that Bill Clinton should have resigned over Monica Lewinsky. What do you make of Kirsten Gillibrand? It, it tells me that Senator Gillibrand really 
has forgotten what was going on in 1998, if she ever really knew what was going on in 1998. Um, the Lewinsky case was not one of sexual harassment. That's number one. Monica Lewinsky was a cons- consenting adult by all means. You can say that the president acted poorly, acted stupidly, but it's not as if he was forcing uh, Monica Lewinsky to have any kind of sexual relations with him. I mean, it was a terrible, stupid, ridiculous thing for, the, for, for Clinton to have done. But to put it on the scale with what's going on um, today around the Me Too movement, I think it's an insult to the Me Too movement. And uh, Senator Gillibrand ought to realize that. Um, but what she really misses, misunderstands is the whole context of the Lewinsky case, that this really came up only because of the, the investigation into Bill Clinton going all the way back to Whitewater. It was irrelevant to their investigation, yet they brought it up. They basically went into the sex life of the president in order to try and remove him from office, and they came bloody close to doing so. And then there's a second related argument that's been made by a member of the New York Times editorial board, Michelle Cottle. She wrote in the New York Times that Bill Clinton's response to another woman named Juanita Broderick, who said she had been raped by Bill Clinton, Michelle Cottle wrote that Bill Clinton's response was to try to trash the reputation of Juanita Broderick. And she added that Hillary's, quote, fundamental complicity is beyond reasonable doubt, close quote. Now, this has sort of become a theme that Hillary is complicit in Bill's misdeeds. What do you think about that argument? I'd like to see some evidence. There's no evidence whatsoever. I mean, once again, writers across the political spectrum imagine things about the Clinton based on no evidence whatsoever. The Juanita Broderick story was around at the time as was the charge, charges, uh, later charges by a woman named Kathleen Willey about the president making a, um, uh, an unwelcome advance to her in the Oval Office, actually. The Starr office, the Office of Independent Counsel under Kenneth Starr, relentlessly investigated those charges of both Juanita Broderick and Kathleen Willey, and they came away saying that they were at best inconclusive, and in the Willey case that they were really out, out to lunch. Yet they keep coming up. It's yet another, you know, sort of right-wing scam that a lot of people, perfectly honest people, have caught on to as if it was is absolutely true. If the Star Office was unable to find compelling evidence that Bill Clinton had actually done any of the things he was accused of doing in these cases, believe me, they would have presented it. Well, Bill Clinton's independent counsel and persecutor, Kenneth Starr, is now saying that the Clinton impeachment was a mistake. I mean, it was his life work, so, so that is big. What do, what do you make of that? Judge Starr is always saying this in the context of saying that um, there's no reason to, to, to go after um, President Trump. There's no reason to believe that, that, that President Trump has committed, committed any impeachable offenses, which is pretty strange when you think about it, because here is President Trump, who, in connection with the, with the Russia in, inquiry, this is an inquiry into a hostile foreign power compromising American democracy. You know, this is not about a phony land deal or about, you know, interns in the White House. No, this is about a compromising American democracy in which his former campaign manager, his former uh, personal attorney, um, his advisor, Roger Stone, um, have all been indicted. I would say that Judge Starr's uh, standards have shifted dramatically over the last 20 years, at the very least, if he believes all of that. Judge Starr will say that there was not a national consensus around the people. That's the reason. We, the people, were not in favor of the impeachment. Therefore, we should not have pursued it. He did not say that at the time, <laughs> to say the least. And 
he did um, in, in his memoir, he defends precisely what he's now saying, you know, shouldn't have been pursued. It's all a mass of great contradictions. But the bottom line of it all is that he is doing this uh, basically to, to, to back up Donald Trump, for which the president has thanked him in, in at least one tweet. So what are the lessons of the Clinton impeachment for the House Judiciary Committee today? The main lesson is that you need credible proof of a high crime and misdemeanor as outlined in the Constitution of the United States before you pursue impeachment. If they fail to do that, as I believe the House um, failed to do in 1998, then they are pursuing an illegitimate um, impeachment proceeding, and, and that's the difference between the two. Sean Malentz. He wrote about the Clinton impeachment for the New York Review. Thank you, Sean. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John, as ever. The New York Times recently reported on what it called the Walmart of heroin in the Philadelphia neighborhood called Kensington. For a report on keeping people alive in an epidemic of overdoses in places like Kensington, we turn to Maya Salovitz. She wrote the New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Scientific American, and the Nation. Maya Salovitz, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, you talk about the carnival of chaos and death that has accompanied the current crisis that you report on from Philadelphia, where you say no one can recall anything like the current crisis. You went there to the badlands of Kensington and Philadelphia. Tell us about your visit. It's just quite astonishing. We used to see in New York in the 80s, these like open air street drug markets where there were people literally like lining up on the streets for um, to buy drugs. And it was just very much out in the open. But I've never seen something as intense as it is there right now, because not only is there this open scene, but there are people who are just staggering around like sort of a level of high that you normally don't see that many people. And you say that the local public library there carries the overdose drug naloxone. Tell us about that. Well, the good thing about opioids is that there's an antidote um, called naloxone, which can uh, reverse an overdose immediately if given in time. And it, it doesn't do anything other than that. It will put you into withdrawal if you're physically dependent on an opioid. But um, if you give it to, say, somebody who overdoses on coke or who has a heart attack or whatever, it's not going to do any harm. So um, in this area where there's people who are just looking for a safe spot to inject, a library bathroom will be warm and private. And so people go in there to do their thing. And then because fentanyl is so prevalent, a lot of them overdose. And then you have librarians doing overdose reversal with naloxone. The heart of your article for The Nation is the report that Philadelphia could become the first city in the United States to open something called a safe injection facility. Tell us about that. So the idea is basically clearly in areas like Kensington where there's concentrated, intense levels of drug use. Nobody walking down the street wants to see somebody shooting up in their neck. No little child on their way to school wants to be watching somebody perform sex work in order to get their next drug. 
the people who are engaged in those activities do not want to be doing it in the public, but they don't have anywhere else to go. So what a safe injection facility does is it allows people a space where they can do the drug without being in a hurry, without looking over their shoulder for the police, without having to share needles, without having to just, you know, sort of jam it in there quickly so they can get on their way and not be ripped off. It, it basically gives them a space to make this private. And also, if there is an overdose, it can be instantly reversed because there are trained people on hand to do that. Well, how can it be a good idea to help people shoot drugs? Of course, this is the the big objection to safe injection facilities. How can a safe injection place help addicts recover as opposed to making it easier for them to continue being addicts? Well, people have this really absurd idea that if you just are horribly cruel to people with addiction and just put all kinds of obstacles in their way, that's going to stop them. Addiction is defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, by the most accepted definition in the world for addiction, is compulsive behavior that continues despite negative consequences. So what do we do to try to fix it? Pile on the negative consequences when that is exactly what it does not respond to. So if you actually want people to stop using, you need to give them space to think. And that's what all of harm reduction approaches do such as needle exchange or safe injection sites and even prescribing heroin. Basically, during active addiction, people are in the grip of the compulsion to continue to do the drugs, and that is their sort of very, very narrow focus. And if they just have the drugs, if they're just in a safe space and they're not in all that you know, chasing, worrying about the cops, worrying about getting the money, all that kind of stuff, suddenly they've got a whole lot of free time on their hands. And suddenly they start thinking, oh, you know, maybe this really isn't what I want. And the other portion of harm reduction that's really important and, and that people don't see, when you give somebody a clean needle or a safe space to inject, what you're telling them is you deserve to live regardless of our judgment of these habits. We record our show in L.A., On Skid Row, there is a needle exchange, which is sort of one step down from a safe injection facility. And if you talk to the people who come in the door, some of them will tell you, this is the only place I've ever been to in my life where people cared what happened to me. That's exactly the beauty of harm reduction. And that's why you can almost see it as a spiritual thing. I mean, people are just fundamentally being compassionate and saying that, you know, we don't want you to harm yourself. We know that you're engaged in this activity that you don't want to stop at this point, but let's not die. Let's keep you alive. Let's see what we can do in order for you to be healthier. And it is amazing to see what happens when some of these extremely marginalized people get a sense that somebody cares. What is just so tragic to me is that we as a society are just like, throw those people away, they're useless, they're parasites, they're, you know, they don't do anything worthwhile. They would if we would give them a chance and stop trying to, like, bat them over the head so that they stop using drugs. So the United States right now has no cities with legal safe injection sites, although some are trying to do it now. But there are places outside the United States where this is become an ordinary part of city life. Where are those places? 
Well, I mean, in Switzerland, the first safe injection facility opened up in 1986. And Vancouver has had its safe injection facility, I believe, since the mid-90s. Australia's had them for a long time. Germany has them. The Netherlands have, has them. I mean, really, they are not anything different than a syringe exchange with a place for people to actually use the drugs. And I think one of the things that is really tragic about the current fentanyl epidemic is that when the problem was primarily heroin and when the biggest harms that you were associating with injection were the spread of disease and overdose on heroin, safe injection facilities were pretty useful in getting people to dramatically reduce those risks. But with fentanyl on the street, it's sort of like every single injection is like playing Russian roulette. And so people um, in Vancouver um, and in many of these other places are really starting to talk about we really need to like give people a safer supply of drugs and not be having them play Russian roulette every time they take an injection. And that, of course, sounds incredibly scary to people. Now, Switzerland, of course, has had heroin prescribing since the 80s, and, or early 90s, rather. And the U.K. and actually the United States had prescribing for people with addiction in the 20s, and the U.K. kept that all the way up until now. They actually have some people who are maintained on heroin and a very few who are maintained on cocaine. This has been a thread in drug policy for a long time. And what happens, again, when you provide people a safer supply is that people have a moment to think. The cops and robbers go out of their life. They are more likely to get a job, are less likely to engage in criminal activity, are more likely to care for their families, you know, all the good stuff. And where in the United States has the campaign for safe injection sites made the most progress? We've talked about Philadelphia. I assume there are other places also. Yes. And I mean, to me, the hopeful thing, I've been writing about addiction and and harm reduction, which is the idea that our drug policy should focus on reducing harm, not reducing people getting high. I've been focusing on that for about, uh, writing about it for about 30 years now. And, you know, when needle exchange was first starting in the late 80s and early 90s, there was massive opposition. Cities did not want needle exchange. New York shut down its needle exchange that the public health department had opened and ACT UP had to come and fight to get it back. We had all of this anti-needle exchange activism, basically, by politicians and by some crazy people like the Guardian Angels, believe it or not. But anyway, there was all this you know, opposition, and certainly there is still opposition now, but we've got New York, Philadelphia, Seattle, Denver, Vermont, now fighting to be the first, oh, Ithaca, New York, to be the first place to open a safe injection site. So there are politicians that are on side. There is real progress being shown here because at least we're not fighting to keep it out. Maya Salovitz, she wrote about Two cities in the grips of the opioid crisis, Philadelphia and Vancouver. For the new issue of The Nation, Maya, thanks for your work on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thanks so much. Finally, will Major League Baseball caps be union-made? 
On this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, Dave talks about cap maker New Era, which announced it was relocating a factory from Derby, New York, to a non-union shop in Florida. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.